Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we had a very special and unique guest, Rory Gavusht. Rory is our first Scholars of Finance graduate or alumni that we've had on the podcast ever since we started doing the show. Rory was one of the co-founders of the UC Berkeley Scholars of Finance chapter during his senior year of college, back in our earliest days of SOF. And Rory has stayed very engaged in Scholars of Finance ever since. And he's had a really impressive early career. Rory, fresh out of college, was the co-founder and CTO of a fintech startup that helped bring options products to the mass consumer market. And today he's a trader at Volion, one of the largest machine learning hedge funds in the world. Rory is a philosopher at heart. He studies ethics. He studies morality. He studies the classics. He's a deep thinker and one of my dearest mentees. And I've loved our conversations over the years, and I'm so excited to have him on the podcast today. We cover a few topics. First, you learn a little bit about Rory and his background, and then we dive into an essay that Rory recently wrote that he titled, It's Not That I Don't Believe You, where he lays out and addresses some of the criticism that finance often receives and shares his thoughts on how ethical regulation and ethical leadership can make the financial system achieve its potential for good. One thing that we're also very excited to share that we've announced a couple of weeks ago is that Rory, on his own volition, his own idea, pledged 10% of his annual bonus to Scholars of Finance in the form of a very generous donation every year and already deployed that first very large gift. And Rory wanted to talk about his essay, talk about his thoughts on ethical leadership, and talk about why he made that incredible pledge and commitment and why he hopes that others will join him in pledging some portion of their bonus or supporting scholars of finance financially to help us achieve our mission of inspiring character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. This is a really special conversation, a unique one for us, and it was a lot of fun. As you'll see, Rory is incredibly thoughtful and mature for his age and his stage, wise beyond his years. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Rory today. Rory Gavusht, what a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast, buddy. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from? Actually, it's an honor to be here. So I'm really excited for today. And I'm calling in from Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm here for a few months taking advantage of my schedule at work, which basically has me start in the evening so that I can ski in the morning. And it's been awesome. Apparently, it's the best snow they've had here in like 18 years or something. Tell our listeners, why are you working in the evenings right now? So I'm on a rotational program for the hedge fund that I work for, Volion. It's a machine learning hedge fund. I bounce back and forth between the Asia desk and the US desk. I'm on the Asia desk now. So Tokyo opens like 5 p.m. Mountain time. And I usually roll on the desk around like 4 or 4.30. Nice, nice. Rory, I'm jealous. I'm sure anyone listening is very jealous of that temporary lifestyle or that lifestyle you currently have. Let's jump right in. You have so many questions and limited time. Really excited to have you on the podcast. This is the first time that we've just had one of our recent SOF alum, one of our recent SOF grads come on the podcast, you know, excited to set the precedent with you. For everyone listening, tell us your story. Tell us about your background. Who is Rory Gavusht? What should we know about you? 
I like to start with that I was born and raised in Oregon, just so that everyone understands at some point I thought I was going to be like a park ranger, right? I had no interest in going into a career in high finance. It was, it was not really on my radar. When I graduated high school, I applied to a few schools, most of which had like bears as their mascots. One of those schools was UC Berkeley, Golden Bears, Go Bears. I went there. I studied two things, data science and then interdisciplinary studies. The interdisciplinary studies was the one I was really excited about. It's a mix of like economics, statistics, and philosophy. I really just, I think going to a, such a great school and being able to study philosophy was a huge benefit. After that, I had done a handful of internships, basically in trading while I was in school graduated and then I started an options trading company based out of Chicago. It was sort of like a betterment or wealth front, but for options. So you come in and say, Hey, I really want to do this cool option strategy. I want this sort of risk exposure, this sort of portfolio exposure. And then we actually just help you create that at an individual level. And I just have a burning passion for derivatives. So that was like a really cool project to work on. After that project, I moved on to the current role, which is I'm a trader at Volion, which I had mentioned earlier is a large machine learning hedge fund. And then outside of all of these things, I'm like an avid reader. I love going outside, skiing's big. And I recently got into boxing, which has been really nice for my Irish roots. The former boxer in me is very supportive, but me 10 years later hopes you you stay safe and, and take care of that very, very high-powered brain in your skull as you're doing it, you spend more time hitting bags than actually in the ring getting hit in the face. <laughs> so we can protect what's up, that that beautiful thing in your head. I appreciate you sharing very briefly a bit about your background. Tell us more sort of about that journey, how you made the decisions between these career steps, what inspired your passion for trading for options. Tell us about that startup a little bit more and ultimately what led you to move over to Volion. Yeah, I think there's kind of three parts, like where does the actual intrinsic interest in finance come from, right? I can tell you that I'm not extrinsically motivated. I'm not here for money. I'm absolutely here because I think it's a fascinating industry. I think it's one of the most powerful industries on the planet. I sort of had picked that up early on in my like intellectual career when I first came to Berkeley and was learning about all these different industries of like, oh man, maybe I want to go into agriculture. Maybe I want to go be like a super park ranger now that I'll have this college degree and all these things. I realized that every single industry in the same way that there's the Andreessen Horowitz software is eating the world, every industry is also financed. So in, in many ways, like capitalism or finance is sort of eating the world. I think that those are the two most powerful industries, but because they're so meta, they can actually help every other industry on the planet. And finance was just became this huge conduit of learning for me, where if you want to understand something, you can understand how it's financed and you kind of get an understanding of the under the underlying principles of the business or kind of whatever you're going into. So at that point, it became really interesting. And then I got into this sort of derivatives products, which is it goes from a 2D game, oh, you buy a stock, it goes up, down, you make money, lose money to this like three, four dimensional game where it's volatility blows out. All of a sudden you made a lot of money. You've seen a lot of time decay because you're just closer to expiration. You're losing money. All of these different things become very interesting considerations. And that kind of just like fascinated me. Like it became this perpetual game that you can just continue to play and play. And so long as you don't like lose sight of there is an underlying product that's being delivered here and you continually focus on that, you're always barking up an interesting tree with finance. So that was kind of my philosophic insight all throughout college. I just realized this has got to be one of the coolest industries on the planet. And then just internship after internship, doing like moving to Chicago and doing options trading for my sophomore summer, being at a small option shop out of Marin County in California my junior year, and then realizing that maybe I could just do this entrepreneurially 
was like a, a fascinating insight. And I was lucky enough to have someone willing to sort of like bet on me and fund the project on the side, which was really, really exciting. And I was actually the technical lead for that. So not only did I get the benefit of pursuing an interest that I was really passionate about, this like financial curiosity, I also got to learn a lot of technical skills. So I built everything from like the database backend, the CICD pipeline, all the way up to like the options back testing software, the execution platform, like all of these things kind of came into my wheelhouse. So I, it was a huge learning opportunity. And that's kind of why I took it. I had like one option, go work at a trading firm. The other option is go build a trading firm. I can tell you that the second option, there's, there's a lot more learning to do there. There's a lot more personal growth. So that's why I took that option. After that project kind of unwound, I wanted to take the Volion role because I'd never done quant trading before. And that's a very like mathematics, statistics focused, the kind of decisions you're making aren't like, what do I think of the stock? It's how do you save a few extra basis points on a huge amounts of notional order flow? It's a very different way of thinking, but nonetheless, a very interesting one. Yeah, incredibly interesting, Rory. I'm curious because on your time in Scholars of Finance, you helped co-found the Berkeley chapter of Scholars of Finance, one of our first chapters ever in this community. Of course, we've known each other for several years since then, having a lot of mentorship conversations, a lot of discussions about finance, the industry itself, the value it can create economically. One question I want to ask you that I imagine is on the minds of a lot of our listeners is there's sort of this reputation that hedge funds have generally broadly with a lot of folks that it's just value extracting. You can bifurcate financial activity into activity that adds societal value, that maximizes human flourishing, venture capital that facilitates innovation, the right kind of private equity that levels up the management and culture and systems of older businesses and industries and consolidates them, activist investing where someone buys and holds a portion of a large business and then influences the management's decision for better microfinance, right? Where we're literally providing credit facilities and capital to people in developing countries to include them in the, the global economic system and, and financial system formally. And then there's extractive activity, right? Just simply siphoning value out of that system and then distributing that to some subset of individuals. You've cared so much about ethics and finance and the impact that finance has. And we're going to get into this, your essay, this essay that you wrote that we're really excited about at SOF. How do you think about options and derivatives as a like value-added product in the financial system generally? And then within that, what are like the types of options and derivatives, products and activities that you think, yep, these are purely just value extractive and these could disappear and the world would be equal or better off for it because all of that capital and talent would be directed to actually value adding activities. And then sort of what is the subset of like options and derivatives, products and activity that you would argue is value added, like is intrinsically and inherently benefiting society? These are big and fascinating questions. So the first one, just as a quick aside, the scholars of finance chapter at Berkeley, I was very happy to found that I actually remember that the first question I asked you on the phone when you called, it wasn't the first question, but it was maybe the last question. I said, what do you think of payment for order flow? Talk to me about this at Robinhood. What are they doing? And, and you gave a pretty solid answer to that. And then I was like, okay, you know, I will help this guy found this chapter, even though it's my senior year, you know, I, I <laughs> think, but I'll help this guy out. I think actually that spirit, right, of you have these complex financial products underneath them, like what is going on? Is this actually value additive to society is the fundamental question. I kind of referenced this earlier. It's very important not to lose sight of what you're doing. So I'm, I'm going to break your question into two parts of like, well, where do I draw the line between value additive value, just kind of extracting? 
And then in the derivative space, where do you find these value additive and value destructive products? I sort of think of there's two broad types of finance. One is financial investment creation. So this is saying, I'm giving you a loan that nobody would have given you before so that you can go get an education. And now that has allowed you to create either better constructs in your mind or a better skill set. And you become a better, more employable version of yourself, something like this. But it was because I gave you this loan, which is sort of an investment tool that allows you to go and have this future you would not have had without this financial investment. That's creating a future that would not have existed without the financialization, without the investment. So I think that is a creative and usually very value additive portion of finance. I think there's a secondary. So directly coming from that is, okay, you know, now I, as the bank have this loan, well, maybe I want to give this loan to someone else. This is where you get the idea of secondary markets. I want to be trading with someone else. I want to give someone else this value generative asset that I have. That is in my mind, the second portion of finance, which is transferring value from party to party. That is where I think you can get this argument for liquidity, which is okay, right? And then you also have like high transaction costs, depending on the asset. You sort of are just kind of moving money around in a very almost deliberate way sometimes. That is where I think you really start bridging into the gray area of like probably not the the most useful for society and and probably not the real core value out of finance. Again, I, I think the core value out of finance is sort of taking things that could exist in the future and financing them so that they will exist in the future. So that's the philosophic insight. Draw that over to derivative products. I think you get on the creation side, in any derivative transaction, the underlying product is uncertainty. So now you're giving people a way to insure themselves, whether that's stock insurance by buying puts or whether that's like crop insurance by hedging out their futures risk so that they're not exposed to macroeconomic swings up or down. You can see this in basically any futures product. I think that those kinds of markets are really useful. Markets that help people take tangible exposure to uncertainty and then hedge that with derivative products that are basically funded by speculators who are willing to take those risks on uncertainty. A farmer has no business speculating on the global macroeconomic climate. Someone who works as a macroeconomist at one of these big hedge funds probably does. Being able to transfer the risk from the farmer to the macroeconomist is a really good value add, and that's almost always done with derivative products. Again, where I think this gets dicey is that we have high-frequency trading firms raking in billions of dollars of profit a year just from providing really good liquidity on these markets. This is an idea that I've had for a while, but I haven't fully fleshed out. So I I hope none of your listeners come after me too hard on it. But I've always thought that the correlation between money-making and volume versus money-making and tight spreads in the trading world is always one that I, I wish didn't exist. Because you get more people trading, you know, you're making the bid-ask spread as a market maker, you're kind of raking in more value because more people are trading. But I think the actual value add is in a secondaries market, making sure that there's really tight spreads so that someone can come in and immediately transact to transfer this risk over or, or get out of some position they don't want. The value add comes from the tight spreads. The value add doesn't come from the volume, but they kind of get conflated. And if a bunch of people are trading, that's probably not good for the world. But if a bunch of people are able to get out of risks that they don't want, that's probably is good for the world. I'll kind of pause there. That That's where I would sort of draw the line, both kind of like macro level and then also in derivative specifically. I appreciate you sharing. And I think there's so much to unpack to no surprise to me, but I'll say for our listeners, you've always had like an incredibly thoughtful, detailed perspective on this industry, right? Trying to build a business in this industry, working at one of the top hedge funds you know, in the world doing this. I guess a couple of things I want to dig into deeper. 
is sort of the motivation behind these instruments and the financial activity. You mentioned like one of the pro options and derivatives arguments is liquidity. And you sort of have jokingly said, that's a good argument. This is one question that I've often asked is how much liquidity is actually necessary, right? You mentioned the high frequency trading firms who literally are just doing trades in, in petaseconds, siphoning billions of dollars out of the system. And they might justify themselves by saying they provide liquidity to the market to aid in price discovery, et cetera. And you know, the fluidity and, and the, the ease of markets, right? Removing friction from our ability to transfer risk to hedge our positions. I'm really curious from your perspective, does motivation, this becomes a very ethical and philosophical question. A, like where do you think motivation sort of plays into this? And B, how and where do you think distribution plays into this? What I mean by these questions is on motivation, you could say, hey, when you built this startup, you wanted to make these products, these risk hedging products available to a mass consumer audience. I think that's admirable, right? To give the ability to hedge the risks that they have in their investment portfolio, right? For the everyday consumer. You know, you talk about these high-speed trading firms, generally it's billionaires and it's their firm and it's just siphoning billions of dollars and putting it in the pockets of a couple dozen people or a few hundred people, right? Like billions, the very well-known show is depicting this, right? That it's it's a very small few just siphoning billions of dollars out of the system and yeah. only distributing it to themselves. So on the motivation front, you could say, hey, the motivation behind this is to help people hedge their risk to help the everyday consumer protect themselves, or these funds are being distributed to people who really need funding and really need really need capital and really need liquidity, et cetera. On the flip side, the motivation could be, we just want to become billionaires. <laughs> and the distribution could be to 12 people or to 100 people, massing amounts of wealth that they don't actually need to meet their basic needs or even live a very illustrious life. From your perspective, how do motivation and distribution fit into your like ethical assessment, right, of a lot of the hedge fund activity, a lot of the options and derivatives products? I love these kind of you know, multi-part questions. I'll, I'll try and tackle it as best I can. Motivation, I think it's sort of a complacent way of thinking to say that for every dollar I make, it's a bunch of value and I'm motivated by dollars and that's all I want. I just want to make more and more money. The way that that takes you is almost inextricably towards this technological, futuristic growth, 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 growth. It's unclear that that actually, when you step back and look at a holistic value, you take into account all of the kind of societal actors, you take into account all of the stakeholders, that this sort of growth, 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 growth mentality is actually correct. I bring that up because I think the motivation in many ways is for money. I think many people that work in finance want to make a lot of money. And that's awesome. I, I really do think that's good. I think there's a subsection of people that are actually very powerful in finance. I've always been surprised by this, who are not just motivated by money. They do see the larger societal picture and they want to provide value additive products in that sense. I would say motivation is simply split between those two things. When it comes to distribution, I think that this is sort of a hangover from or maybe an unfortunate consequence of how infrastructure is built. The New York Stock Exchange, just because under the buttonwood tree, it's just created. All of a sudden, you create all this investment capital to make a really high-frequency trading firm. You're the only person doing it, and, and this becomes very good for you. And then you keep passing on the shares of this company downstream for a while. You can think that you've invested all of this capital into making a really high quality trading product, which is able to provide liquidity on the New York Stock Exchange, and you've been doing it for years. Now you've connected to all the other exchanges. You have all of this infrastructure already built. All your like laser systems are already set up. And then that capital is going to be held by just a few people. Maybe there's a handful of high-paid employees who are able to maintain it. But 
you're now at this point so far advanced out of anyone that might be able to compete with you. I could never be an equity market maker because the bids are so, and the bids and offers are so tight. They change so rapidly. They update so quickly that nobody is really going to be able to step in and compete with like Citadel, for example, here. I think that that's actually what you see is that a handful of firms have made so much technological progress that the distribution, not only of money in terms of profit making, but the distribution of infrastructural advancement for the underlying technologies is way, 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 way concentrated. I see those two as the real cause effect. I don't really think that God has just decided to give Citadel lots of money. I think it's because of this infrastructural advancement that's so far along that there's not really a lot of competition there. And that I, I think is almost like a market dynamic. I think of it as an unfortunate consequence. An unfortunate one is definitely the sentiment I would put behind it. I appreciate you sharing. You know, you mentioned that you think a lot of people in finance are motivated by money. That's awesome. That's a good thing. Curious for you to unpack that a little bit more for our listeners, because one thing we teach at Scholars of Finance is one of the biggest risks that we face in finance is greed, right? It is this sort of unchecked desire for more, never finding contentment with what we have, which can A, be a, a very, very significant risk to our ethical and moral behavior and actions and consistency. When you look at Bernie Madoff, potentially Sam, I think Sam Bankman-Fried, you look at Enron, a lot of the largest frauds and even 2008, 2009, some of the biggest challenges that we've seen in finance, the downfall of firms, the collapse of the economic machine, plunging millions of people into poverty and homelessness, most would argue that greed is one of the core drivers of that. And so at SOF, we teach to practice gratitude, right? To actually develop and cultivate contentment and gratitude for what we have as an antidote to this sort of natural pressure around us to want more, to compare ourselves to others, to have money be a motivator. We also teach humility. We teach to serve a purpose greater than ourself, right? That a life lived to make money is an, on a risk-adjusted basis, incredibly high risk for being unrewarding, unfulfilling beyond the ethical risks it poses. It is just for personal fulfillment, a very high risk approach to living the good life or an honorable life. And that actually living a life to serve others, to improve the lives of others, to maximize human flourishing, to solve problems, to help our families, our communities, all the research and the wisdom of the ages teaches us that that is the, on a risk-adjusted basis, optimal sort of motivation to have, right? Sort of this altruistic, selfless motivation to help others. And so I'm curious if you could unpack that statement that, hey, it's good that people want to make money. In what ways is that good? And in what ways can that motivation be channeled for the optimal outcomes, both for the individual and for the effect that their activities have on the world around them? I think with greed... You have two things at play. One is you have this desire, right? Like you just want more things, whether that's money, which in this case is probably what we're talking about. When you have the sense of like deep greed and like deep desire for much more money, you see that manifest itself in like profits, like driving behaviors and actions. And you kind of just this myopic focus on I'm going to make more money. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to make more money. And that will almost always lead you to short-sightedness, right? And you won't be taking long-term views. What I would offer as like a substitute here 
for this sort of greed is like, you should focus on innovation, specifically in financial contexts. So instead of saying, how can I make more money right now with the current system? It's how can I make more value, like actually create better products for the current system so that you're replacing this greed oriented focus using a current system as it is with an innovation focus and an innovation orient so that you're kind of adding more value and you're creating these new products that might actually help people in the long stand. That being said, I think that's where does a lot of greed come from? Probably people wanting money. How can you substitute, get out of this problem? I think focus on innovation instead. But I think there's this sort of like last kind of underlying point, which is, well, why are people motivated by this, right? It's enough to say that, well, maybe they are, but sort of why. I think it comes back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, but I almost think that it's like a complacent way of thinking. It's very easy to do, right? Money is something you can see in a bank account. You can't see the value that you're adding to people's lives by giving them this like microfinancing in Indonesia or somewhere like this. You can't really quantify that, but nonetheless, it has like a, a real impact on the world, but it's much easier to just say, well, this number went up. This is a metric I care about. So it, this must be good to step back and kind of quantify all these other things that are really important. It's really difficult. So I almost think of it's it's like the easy route. And when you have an easy path versus like harder, more holistic path, just probabilistically, a lot of people will take that easier path. Right, right. I appreciate you talking about innovation and what you've shared, I think insights sort of two stories I want to share with you and build into my next question. On the one hand, you know, this notion of facilitating innovation, I was talking to Professor Audison, to James Audison at Notre Dame when I was at Notre Dame recently. He teaches moral philosophy and ethics there. He's written a number of books on Adam Smith and on Hume. He studies capitalism, economics, and moral philosophy for you and me, right? You know, we're, we're very close. He's like, he's become an idol very, very quickly for me. He teaches honorable business at Notre Dame. And I was talking about this, how, you know, capitalism is intendably the most productive and effective economic system that we've ever seen tested in history so far and implemented at any level of you know at a large at a high level of scale a large level of scale in, in society so far mm-hmm. i say this to my friends on like who are progressive capitalism is the best system we've ever had i say to my friends who are conservative it would be hubris of us to think that the current form of the economic system is the ultimate and perfect economic system we could possibly design as a human race. There are still 4 billion people living on less than $10 a day. One of the major deficiencies of capitalism is is this massive inequality it creates, right? That then leads to social strife, social unrest. We've seen this time and time again over thousands of years, what massive inequality does to the social fabric. Ray Dalio talks about this in his, his latest book, Principles for a Changing World Order. And it was really interesting. James Audison had shared this really interesting thought experiment that I've never heard. And he said, Ross, what I tell my friends is when you think about the hundreds of millions of people, the enormous population of India, we'll say, and hundreds of millions of them are still living hand to mouth, just trying to get their basic needs met, trying to eat, trying to feed their kids. If 1% or one-tenth of 1% or even one one-hundredth of 1% of the human population are, quote, geniuses, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk's who are capable of just so much innovation to bring to bear for society. If there are 300, 500 million people in India who are just trying to make ends meet, how many millions of them are geniuses that could bring forth dramatic innovations for society if they just had food, water, shelter, education, and healthcare covered, (laughs) were able to spend their time studying at Berkeley like you did, driving innovation in the financial system like you have, 
right? Imagine what that would do to our society, to our collective good, and to every single individual within it, ourselves included, to have those millions of people contributing their innovation, their potential inventions to humanity. You, you talk about profit sort of being the manifestation of greed. I just started reading Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. I haven't read it yet. I've read a lot of Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, Theory of Moral Sentiments. I've read a lot of Keynes. I've read a lot of economics. And still a lot more to go. And I, because of a few students asking me about the moral obligation to drive profit above all else in my recent speaking engagements, I was like, I got to start reading some Friedman and Hayek to like really understand this perspective more deeply. And I was talking to a mentor of mine about how I was going to start reading Friedman and really understanding his views. And he said, I really appreciate it about Friedman. He's like, I met Milton Friedman. He's a wonderful man, so intelligent. I really appreciated his views on government, on individual freedom and what that does for innovation and, and flourishing. But he had his limitations. Profit as the sole moral good has limitations. You can make a lot of profit dealing cocaine or selling tobacco products or selling heroin or in the adult entertainment industry. There are a lot of incredibly profitable businesses that are severely detrimental to the end user of those products and services to society at large as a result. And so there has to be some other set of considerations beyond simply profit that guides our decision-making. With all that said, I want to dive into your essay, this essay that you've written. It's not that I don't believe you as you've titled it. We're so excited at Scholars of Finance about this essay without spoiling it, without talking about it for anyone that hasn't read it yet. Can you, for our listeners, just share a high level of what, what is in this essay, your thesis, what you're putting forth for the world? The essay comes from... A very simple motivation, which is a lot of what we talked about today, that all the people come up to me and be like, Rory, you seem like a pretty good guy. You work as a trader at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, right? Something here doesn't add up. And it's like, I'd always wondered why is this? Why do people view this morality of this guy seems like a good guy? And then the, his industry of choice, they seem like they're juxtaposed. Why are those it's just so contrary? And I inevitably, I found myself having the same conversation again and again. Someone comes up and says, you know, I, I noticed this about you. I noticed this about finance. And I would always just tell them some variant of the same thing, which is it's not that I don't believe you, right? Like finance does have its problems. There, there are serious issues in the industry, but we can't like let it stay this way. And there are ways in which we can actually make real change in this industry. I just don't view the future of finance as this like, hopeless, deterministic, greed, profit-driven industry. It doesn't have to be like that. So the essay in earnest is just that argument. It's just saying, it's not that I don't believe you, there are serious problems here, but the future of finance is not bleak. And we have a lot of people, much to thank to your organization, as well as just people I've met. There are people in finance who really do care about the future of humanity, right? And they're not in this industry just for greed and money. And those people, I think, are going to drive a lot of the innovation that we see in the sector. As you know, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I feel proud of the thoughts you're putting forth, the saliency of the arguments you make in the essay. Obviously, you should feel proud of yourself, I think, and that's far more important. I'm happy for you and happy for the industry that it has you. You discuss in the essay the need for ethical regulation and for ethical leaders in finance. Can you touch on each of those a little bit? Totally. So. Okay, why is the future of finance not bleak? We have, I think, one tool 
and then one type of person who can enact that tool. The tool, I think, is ethical regulation. I, I always think of this analogy with Odysseus. You know, he's going by the sirens. He ties himself to the mast. And then, you know, he's sort of prevented from doing this, jumping into the water and going after the sirens. He's the first person to ever sort of sail past easy breezy. I think of ethical regulations as sort of those kinds of rules, the kinds of rules that stop people from being able to, if you ever want to read a crazy story, buy most of the onions in Chicago via futures derivative products, totally scalp a bunch of farmers into having to just completely sell at prices they never would have wanted to. And then how did we respond to that? Well, we responded to it with regulation. We said, we shouldn't let people do this. This is wrong. Right. I think you can have regulation. I'm going to bend the typical definition of it kind of here, but there's regulation at a legal level. So what is the government supposed to do? But I also think there's regulation at a company level or policy level. And that's going to be saying we just don't engage in this type of business. A really good example of this is let's say you're trading with a handful of brokers. One of them is saying, hey, I'll actually pay you to short the stock or pay you to like long the stock or something like this. And the other one's saying, hey, to take that same position, I'm going to charge you a little bit. It should strike you as an arbitrage opportunity where you can go long the stock over here. You can go short the stock over here. They're going to pay you 2% to go long. They're going to charge you 1% to go short here. And then you basically make a percent risk-free, right? Your exposure is totally hedged. You're long over here. You're short over there. That's picking off brokers. That's like taking advantage of an intra-broker arbitrage. If you do that, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to make money. Two, your brokers are going to be pissed at you. Because they're going to be like, listen, you just took advantage of us, right? You're using our preferential pricing, which we give to you so that you can help us make our book more efficient or whatever it is. You're using it against us. Just make a policy in your company to never do that. Some companies take that policy. Some companies don't. But I, I think that is another example of an ethical policy in which, yeah, you can make more money by sort of picking off brokers, but you shouldn't. Right? It's not the right thing to do. And okay, so you've got this concept of ethical regulation. The sort of spirit of these is do the right thing and kind of strap yourself to the mass still a little bit so that you have to, in case like someone came in and said, oh, dude, I've got this great idea. Why don't we just pick off brokers? Look, it's a huge securities lending arbitrage opportunity. We actually have a policy against them to stop both kind of the young and naive people from being too excited and then to stop people who might be more malicious actors from doing it because it's company policy. Right? But who does this? The type of people that are going to do this are people who have said, what is the right thing to do here? Like, what should we actually do? These are the people that I really want to inspire. And these are the people I really want to give voice to is like, you can be an ethical person in finance. You can take these stances. And so long as they're cogently argued, people will respect you. Yeah, you might make a little bit less money, but you have to understand that like, if you make a few less basis points, but you're no longer selling weapons of mass financial destruction, this is a good thing for you, Right. You really want to be considering the societal risks you're involving. You really want to be considering the relationships that you have with your contraparties. These are all things that if you come in with this profit-driven mindset, that you're basically going to be bribed into doing just by the like sheer force of the dollar. You're going to be bribed into doing things that are a little unethical. Whereas if you have a sort of ethical mindset, you say, I'm going to do the right thing here. You're going to come up with ethical rules. You're going to come up with ethical regulations, and you're going to be motivated to enact and enforce them. And that's basically the, the argument of the essay is, well, you know, if you have people who really care about it, they're going to make up rules to stop people from being bad actors. And this is better for our society going forward. One thing I think you also make clear in the essay is that one side you have regulation, and on the other side, you have the actors in the financial system themselves, not only creating rules and regulations that are ethical and like Odysseus or Ulysses, like strap us to the mast so we maintain our ethical boundaries, but also that we can keep ourselves in check. 
mm-hmm. right? Ethical leaders in finance, the individuals that comprise the system itself, having an ethical compass, a moral compass, having reflected on their values and principles will make ethical decisions personally along the way. The way I think you and I have discussed this is you need both ethical regulation and ethical players in the industry. Ideally, 99.9% of all the players in the industry are ethical. They are thinking about how to innovate and make a positive impact and use finance as a force for good. But in an imperfect system, there's that 0.1% or that 1% or the 10% who get in, right, who have unchecked greed and ego and don't have this ethical and moral compass. The Bernie Madoffs of the world, the Sam Bankman Freeds of the world, the Gordon Geckos of the world, the Jordan Belforts of finance, right? That the media depicts the worst in finance, they can get in. And so you need that regulation to make sure that that small subset of the actors that work their way into the financial system don't wreak havoc and plunge the world into chaos economically and don't continue to give all of Wall Street and finance a bad reputation. That actually creates an adverse selection bias where the Jordan Belfort wannabes want to go into finance and all the young people that want to change the world don't even think about finance where they can arguably make the single greatest impact possible, right? Allocating billions or trillions of dollars towards solving the world's problems and maximizing our shared prosperity. With that said, I want to segue a little bit into your experience with scholars of finance. You helped co-found the Berkeley chapter as a senior you know, help the, the younger students there, lead them and help coach them and, and advise them in the effort. You've still stayed very involved in scholars of finance in a lot of ways, which we'll get to a little bit more later. Can you share with our listeners, the students, the early and mid-career professionals, the executives alike, what was your experience in scholars of finance like as a student? What has your experience in scholars of finance been like as a professional, right, in this professional community over the last couple of years? What have you done in this community? What value have you received in this community? How has Scholars of Finance impacted you and your career so far? The first thought that comes to mind is I absolutely cherish my experience with Scholars of Finance. It is just an amazing organization. It is, for me, the biggest value add is it's an outlet to talk about these financial products, but with an ethical lens, right? It's not typically something you get to do, right? This this isn't a common conversation with friends to be like, hey, remember when Archegos blew up with like the whole Bill Huang fiasco? He was using swaps. That's how he got that exposure. That's how he blew up, right? Having this conversation of like, well, who was like in the wrong there? Who's in the right there? Did the banks do the right thing getting out of the positions and basically leaving Credit Suisse with the bag? Like these conversations, you you don't have those over your buddies with drinks. You have these with other people who are like-minded who care about finance, who work in the industry and have the requisite pre-knowledge, just a great little organization to have these ethical conversations. It really gives a huge open space. And just that alone is enough value for me to want to be involved with the organization forever. Outside of that, the mentors I've gotten from it, the conversations I've had in it, the frameworks that have been developed by being involved in the organization, the leadership opportunities as well, all of these have been huge. Right. So even with just point one, I already think that I've gotten a bargain. And then you add all these other points and it's like, wow, this must be the best trade I've ever taken. I'm really happy to hear that it's it's been so valuable for you and that you've gotten so much from the organization and, and your time in this community so far. Mentorship, networking, introductions, these conversations, these open discussions about the ethics of finance with like-minded individuals. And I hope that any of our other alumni listening and our, our seniors who are graduating soon hear this and are 
inspired to engage in those conversations and think more deeply. You have recently taken steps to increase your investment very literally in the scholars of finance community. You've been a beneficiary of the community. You've been a leader in the community and you're taking a big step. We've made a big announcement about this or doing a campaign around this. You have donated 10% of your latest bonus to scholars of finance. Some would call that radical. We think it's inspiring. When you came to us with the idea to do this, with the desire to do this, we were so thrilled and would love it if you can share what motivated you to do this. Why did you decide to make such a, a monumental donation to scholars of finance just a few years out of college? Well, one, it was an obvious decision. I would make that like really clear. I really believe in the mission of the organization. I think this is a great way to put my money where my mouth is. I also think that it's unique to finance. So much of our kind of compensation is tied to our bonus that like, well, if I'm getting a lot out of this organization, right, I, I should in some way not tie my compensation, but much more clearly say this is a financial donation coming from a finance person to make finance a better place. All three of those things are aligned when you make it a sort of percent of bonus. And the 10% number, that's enough to like be noticeable, right? That's a sizable number off the top. And I uh, don't begrudge scholars of finance the money at all. And I know that it's going to a good place. So when I first came up with the idea, I said, you know, there should be some way to say like, what do I do in the philanthropic community, right? I've always been looking for an outlet for this kind of thing. Scholars of finance is an obvious choice to me. And it's like, well, I donate 10% of my bonus every year to this organization. It's just what I do, right? I hope that others see this as like, you can be involved in a philanthropic organization in finance. You can do some sort of periodic action that shows your dedication both to values and also to the mission of the organization. So yeah, I, I really find that not only did it help me find an outlet for like all of this, maybe not excess capital, but just philanthropic desire. It also serves as a, a real way to have skin in the game. Now that I've donated, I have even more investment here now. And the ROI that I'm looking for is not monetary, right? I could have put this in SPY. I'm looking much more so for more ethics and finance. Like I, I want to see more people hopefully funded by, in part by my donation, caring about innovation, caring about not being greedy, and that's going to, I think, add more wealth to the world than, than anything I could have done with the money. Rory, I moved yet again, listening to you describe why you've made such a material investment and in ongoing pledge to Scholars of Finance as an organization. You know, I think for anyone listening, we would encourage you to consider pledging some portion of your bonus to, to SOF as well. I think, Rory, when you initially called me about the idea, you said there has to be like a jacket or something you get, you know, as part of the 10% club. To like I, I really do want a jacket. That would be great. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> as we get feedback in on this episode, on the essay from our community about this, I'll be curious, any of our listeners, if you have any ideas for any way to commemorate this sort of pledge of a percent of bonus to SOF on an ongoing basis, let us know. I think, Rory, your idea to do something to sort of commemorate that you've made this pledge is, is beautiful. And I think it makes it really fun. And of course, allows you to broadcast the message to the world that you are putting your money where your mouth is. Two, I'm going to ask you two final questions and then a couple rapid fire before we wrap up here. To all of our students listening, we have more than 1,600 candidates and members in the Scholars of Finance community. What advice would you give them? As they're listening here, what can they do in college and shortly after college to be the purpose-driven principal leaders that finance needs? Yeah, I have a very simple answer. Like innovation is interesting. So do the things that are interesting. There's going to be a lot of people who tell you, 
go make a bunch of money, go into investment banking specifically to make money, right? Don't listen. If you're like, I think this particular sub-industry of finance is really, really cool. Don't know why commercial finance is just my thing. Go into it, go after it. Innovation there, because you like genuinely want it will be so much A, lucrative. Like innovation is a lucrative thing. B, it's just going to be interesting. You're going to be playing a fun game for the rest of your career. So do what's interesting. Totally avoid people who say you have to do something because of X, Y, Z. I find that those people are usually talking from their own benefit. Like they, they are doing something for XYZ. So they're kind of broadcasting to you. It should be autotelic, i.e. like the meaning should come from the thing itself, right? Do things that are interesting. And I guarantee you, you will not look back. I think the super easy way to summarize this is I've heard a lot of people make super logical decisions that they've regretted for some time. I've never heard someone made a decision based on like what their soul or their heart was telling them to do or what their intuition was telling them was really interesting. I've never heard people regret those types of decisions. And I can tell you from my experience that that has been hundred percent true for me. Thank you, Rory. What would your message to fellow SOF alumni, early career professionals in finance be? What would you tell them, the folks who are also a few years out of college? Yeah, I think it's some variant of, there's sort of two views of the future, right? There's this kind of like projection. We have what we have now. We can just project that into the future. It's going to be pretty clear. Or there are kind of like promises that you can make about, I'm going to make the future different in this way. And I would empower anyone who's around my age Remember that just because you're young, you can actually make those promises too. You can say, I see this difference in the future that I want. I think that the projection, if we just forward fill here, is not what I'm looking for. And I'm going to make a promise and go and do this thing. Like, I want to see this change. I'm going to make it happen. And you should never feel chained down. You should never feel grappled to be incapable of making these decisions. You actually have fully the capability to enact change in finance, whether it's at a small level at your own firm or whether it's at a macro level starting you know, your own company or being innovative in your own way. But you are not in any career track. The only, I would say, obligation in any sense you have is a responsibility to be like an ethical steward in this industry. And whatever that encapsulates, whatever you think is the right way to do that, just pursue it, right? And you don't mm-hmm. really look back or feel that you have to. Fantastic advice. I'm going to ask you one more question. For the very senior executives listening, we have CEOs and CFOs and GPs and LPs and CIOs listen to our podcast. A lot of them are very curious to understand what millennials and Gen Z think and what's on our mind and how they can lead us and equip us, what our thoughts are on the industry as a member of the next generation of leaders. What would you say to the senior most executives listening that you hope that they understand? It's a good one. I unfortunately don't spend that much time in boardrooms. So I don't get a lot of face-to-face time with these people. But my advice, I think, would actually be pretty simple, maybe somewhat biased by my own perspective. If you are a CEO and you know that you have like 30 analysts underneath you, right? And I mean, they're like five rungs the ladder down. Take the like two minutes, right? 30 people times two minutes. That's an hour of your time. Take the two minutes it'll take you to pull that person aside and give them just like a pep talk or something you would really want them to think about. Because I guarantee you, and they will remember that moment for the rest of their lives, period. You have the power to make people remember one message for the rest of their lives. That is an incredible and intense power. And if you use it well, just imagine the cultural effects that could have on your firm and imagine the change that that can enact even after those people leave your firm. Very wise words. Sage words of advice. Thank you, Rory. Thank you for sharing that. I would just plus one to all of our executives, donors, supporters listening. 
even in my own career, when I was the CEO and chairman of the firm, when I was at Piper Sandler, come and speak potential into me and believe in me, it changed my life. So I'll just plus one that from personal experience. Rory, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I know we're at time. Could ask you so many more questions and you and I could do you know a four-hour fireside chat about the philosophy right. and ethics of finance. Excited to have you on again in the future. Really excited for your latest essay to gain traction, to help promote it and share it with the world. And we're so grateful for your pledge to donate a portion of your bonus every year to Scholars of Finance and inspired that you want to inspire others to follow suit. Thank you again. Really excited. Rory, what a pleasure to have you on today and move from our monthly or quarterly one-on-one mentorship conversations to having you here and to sharing some of your wisdom with the world. Really appreciate you, buddy. Thanks again. And good luck with everything. Yeah, it's an absolute honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.